Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Well, this summer, again, we're continuing through the Apostles' Creed, a creed that has been a unifying affirmation uh, for the church throughout generations and across denominations. And it both instructs us on what are the fundamentals of our faith and guard us against heretical teaching. And so I want to ask you again, church, what do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, as we again study the fundamentals of our faith, may we not just recite them in our heads, God, but may we plunge deeper in this time to understand the weightiness and the beauty of the confession that we are making, Lord. Help us, God, to see afresh the good news of the gospel today, Lord. A story that we have maybe heard thousands of times. May we never grow cold to it. May we never think it to be normal. God, amaze us once again with the good news of your love for us in Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. One of the hardest questions, maybe the hardest question, a pastor faces and a Christian faces is the question of suffering. On many occasions, I have been asked the question, where was God? Where was God when I was being abused? Where was God when I was being assaulted? When were, where was God when I was being molested? In that violent moment, I cried out to God, Lord, help me. And God was silent. I've been faced with the question, why did God allow my child to die? Why did he take him from me? If God is good, and if God is powerful, then why do such horrible things happen? I'm assuming you too have asked God why, or where were you, or how could you? And while I cannot give you the precise reason God has ordained specific tragedies in your story, 
I can, more importantly, tell you what is not the reason. I can tell you that the reason why suffering has entered your story is not because God stopped being good. I can tell you that tragedy has entered your story not because God has stopped being all-powerful. I can tell you that tragedy has entered your story not because God stopped loving you. Now, I know that we are skeptical of these things, but the reason why I can say this with such certainty is because of the passage and profession before us today. Because in today's passage is recorded the most evil act in the history of the world in which those who were created by God and were sustained by God put God in the flesh to death. They mock him, they torture him, they crucify him, and yes, they kill him. And as we will read, this happens not because God stopped being good, not because God stopped being all-powerful, not because God stopped loving us. Rather, these horrific things happen precisely because God is good, precisely because God is all-powerful, precisely because God so loves us. And so let's dive deep into this profession and this passage and remind us that in all things, God is good. In all things, God is powerful. And in all things, God is loving. If you would, please open up to Mark chapter 15. It is page 852 in the Red Bible in the seat in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, that is for you to keep. Again, today is a longer passage, and so, um, which is appropriate because we're covering a, a really the core of the core of Christianity today, that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. And so we are covering a longer passage, and we'll read it in sections throughout the sermon. So please be sure you keep your Bibles open, just as in every sermon. But just prior to the passage that we're going to study today, Jesus is betrayed by Judas in the Garden of Gethsemane. It happens Good Friday morning about midnight. Between 1 a.m. and 5 a.m., Jesus goes under a Jewish interrogation and trial. During that trial, they found Jesus to be guilty of blasphemy because Jesus claims to be the Son of God. Now, the Jews want to... uh, They want to kill Jesus. They want to put him to death for this blasphemy. But their problem is they do not have the jurisdiction to do so because they are under Roman authority. And so they surrender Jesus. They take Jesus to the governor, Pontius Pilate, around 6 a.m. so that Jesus can stand a Roman trial and hopefully be put to death. But the problem with that is that blasphemy, claiming to be the son of God, is not a capital offense in the Roman Empire. But what is a capital offense is to claim to be a king in opposition to Caesar. And so they take Jesus to this governor, Pontius Pilate, and say, this man claims to be king of the Jews. And they do this in the hopes that Pilate will put Jesus to death. And that's where we pick up today's passage. So first profession today that we're covering is that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. Look at verses 1 through 5 with me of Mark chapter 15. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, 
Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus had no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Why is Governor Pilate amazed by the silence of Jesus? Well, we studied in depth the Gospel of John earlier this year, and we saw that as the Jewish leaders tried to put together accusations, all of them contradicted one another, and so they couldn't put together a consistent charge against Jesus, and so these are fumbling people. Pilate also knows that Jesus is very eloquent with words. He's kind of a linguistic ninja if you look throughout the Gospels and the way that he answers his detractors that are trying to catch him into a trap. And yet here in the midst of these bumbling accusations that could easily be dispelled by Jesus, he remains silent. He makes no defense. And to Pilate, this is amazing. And so based on this one claim that Jesus claims to be the king of the Jews, Pilate interrogates Jesus, and we know this from the other Gospels. And Pilate discovers that Jesus does indeed claim to be a king, but not of an earthly political kingdom, but of a universal spiritual kingdom, the kingdom of God. And so Pilate finds Jesus to be no threat to Caesar and declares Jesus on multiple occasions to be not guilty. Now, if you're new to this judicial thing, if you claim someone to be not guilty, if the judge says they're not guilty, what you're supposed to do is to let them go. But there was pressure from the Jewish leaders to put Jesus to death. And so we read verse six. Now at the feast, he, Pilate, used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison, who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them, which is, again, to release a prisoner. Verse 9, And he, Pilate, answered them, saying, Do you want me to release to you, for you, the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. You know, Pilate could see right through the motivation of the Jewish leaders. Pilate knew that their claims were ill-founded. Pilate knew that the leaders hated Jesus because they were jealous of Jesus. And so Pilate goes to the crowd, thinking that the crowd will most certainly release Jesus and get him off the hook with the Jewish leaders. It's actually a pretty ingenious idea. If you think of it, Pilate declares him not guilty, but if Pilate releases him, the Jewish leaders will, will, will protest against Pilate. And so Pilate says, you know what? Instead of me releasing him, I'll have the Jewish people release him. And that way the Jewish leaders will have to take it up with their own people and I will be in the clear. It's an ingenious idea, but it backfires. Verse 11. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out, crucify him, verse 14. And Pilate said to them, why, what evil has he done? 
But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. In this passage, we see the total depravity of man. An innocent man, Jesus, is substituted for a murderer, Barabbas. And as we will see, Jesus took what Barabbas deserved. Jesus took the beating that Barabbas deserved. Jesus took the humiliation that Barabbas deserved. Jesus took the death that Barabbas deserved. Just as Jesus has taken these things which we also deserve. Continues in verse 15. And having scourged Jesus, that's a lashing that would rip the flesh off his back. He delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace. That is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. A battalion would be about 600 men. Who were under the assumption at this point in time that Jesus claimed to be a rival king to Caesar. And so in order to flex their muscles, they spared no expense to mock and torture and belittle Jesus. Could you imagine being in the place of Jesus in this moment of time? That you are inside a room with 600 trained murderers that all seek to bring vengeance upon you. Verse 17. They clothed him in a purple cloak, a mark of royalty obviously placed on him in mockery. And twisting together a crown of thorns, thorns probably up to 12 inches long, they put it on him and they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed, no doubtedly pounding the thorns into his head. They swung that reed like his head was a pinata. And spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. Here we see a terrible dichotomy between the admiration Worship and obedience that King Jesus deserves, and the pummeling, the ridicule, and the humiliation that King Jesus gets. You know, I was recently talking to a friend who shared with me that he got to take his dad on an honor flight. And he said it was an amazing experience. They boarded the plane, they took these vets and uh, one companion. He was one of the companions to D.C. They toured him around the city. They took him to the memorial. And he said it was such a powerful thing to be a part of that. But he said that was not the most amazing part of the trip. The most amazing part of the trip was that when they flew home and got off the airplane and walked into the airport, there were thousands of people who had formed a tunnel to honor and appreciate these vets. And he said that when his father entered into that tunnel of people that were applauding and honoring him, he fell to the ground and started sobbing. The reason was because when he first returned home from war, this was not the reception he received. Many of you know the stories. When he returned home from war, the people, the very people that he went to serve and protect were the very same people who cursed him and mocked him and spit 
on him. But now finally they were recognizing his mission for them, his sacrifice for them, his love for them, and now they were finally honoring him. If this is how we rightfully recognize a soldier who has given up so much for us and was so disrespected by us, who was mocked and beaten not only by those, how much more, excuse me, how much more should we honor Jesus, who was mocked and beaten not only by those he made, but by the very ones he came to save? Jesus came not only to risk his life, friends, Jesus came to give his life for you as a ransom. And while we cannot give Jesus an honor flight, I mean, the Father kind of did that in the ascension, right? We can give Jesus so much more because we can honor Jesus in all times and in all places. We can and must honor Jesus with our words, with our passions, with our attitudes. We can and must honor Jesus with our web browser, with our money, with our marriages, with our singleness. You see, our sin problem is not just a sin problem, it is an honor problem. Because when we sin in thought or word or deed, we dishonor Jesus who gave everything for us. And so let me ask you, and I want you to think carefully, where are you not honoring Jesus with your life? Be honest. I think, you know, a lot of times things come to mind and we push that aside because we don't want to think about that one thing. Bring it back. Jesus, in that area of your life, is worthy of all honor and glory and praise. Not only because Jesus is the king of kings, but because Jesus is the king who humbled himself to suffer under Pontius Pilate for you and for me. And so we believe Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. We also believe that Jesus was crucified. Look in verse 20 with me. It says, And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Simon's recruitment is another painful reminder that Jesus was abandoned by all of his earthly companions. Verse 22, and they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. It was a sedative to dole in the pain, but Jesus wanted to keep mentally sharp and receive the full wrath of God for you and for me with clarity. Verse 24, and they crucified him and divided his garments among him, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. This was a fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy. Verse 25, and it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, aha, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. 
So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. The crucifixion was a horrible way to die. Nails hammered through your wrists, through your feet. You would gradually die of exhaustion through suffocation. But with that said, Mark does not so much highlight the physical suffering of the cross as he does highlight the shame of the cross. In Hebrews chapter 12, we read Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising, <laughs> despising the shame. The cross was an object of great shame. A person was hung naked for all to see their unlovely parts. Their crime was posted above their head so all could know their sin. The cross was shameful. But upon Jesus was shame heaped upon shame. The chief priests belittled him. The Roman soldiers mocked him. The passerbyers derided him. And even the other criminals being crucified reviled him. Now, why did Jesus have to endure this shame of being crucified? The answer, ironically, is actually in the mocking voices. I want to, just two, two of them here. First, look with me at verse 29. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. You see, since Jesus was hanging on the cross, his enemies assumed that he had failed to carry out his promise, which was to destroy the temple and then rebuild it in three days. But in fact, this is exactly what Jesus was doing on the cross. Because the temple that Jesus promised to destroy was his own body. And that on the third day he would raise again to rebuild the people of God, the temple of God, his church. The second ironic statement here continues verse 31. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. If Jesus came down from the cross... If Jesus saved himself from the cross, Jesus could not save others. And he could not save us. Verse 32, let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Again, the irony is that they would never see and they would never believe unless Jesus stayed upon the cross, unless Jesus died, rose again, and ascended to heaven where he could send the helper, the Holy Spirit, who makes us see and who makes us believe. Friends, when we properly grasp the gospel, we are rightly amazed that Jesus went to the cross for us. But you know what might be even more astonishing is that Jesus stayed on the cross for us. February 10th, 2001 was an amazing day for me. <clears throat> that was the day Trisha Gunderson decided to marry me. It was an amazing day. 
But what amazes me even more is that even in my, all of my sins and all of my failures, 18 years later, Trisha Jackson decides to stay married to me. <laughs> Getting married is easy, right? Staying married is hard. But it's such a picture of the Savior. In Matthew 26, Jesus says, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father? And he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels. But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Christian, Jesus not only went to the cross for you, Jesus stayed on the cross for you. Jesus did not call down 12 legions of angels. When the mockers double dog dared him to come down from the cross, he stayed on the cross because Jesus knew that his staying work on the cross was necessary for his saving work on the cross. We believe Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, that he was crucified, and that he died. Verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, it's about noon, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Three hours of complete darkness in the middle of the day. We know it wasn't an eclipse, it was a full moon. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabathani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Verse 35, and some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. This is the final question of Jesus. Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To be forsaken means to be abandoned, to be cut off from favor and fellowship of another. I'm guessing this is sometimes how you feel in the midst of tragedy. You feel forsaken by God, abandoned by God, cut off from the favor and fellowship of God. You may be surprised to know that you are not alone in that feeling. Matter of fact, in this passage, Jesus, or, or in this question, Jesus is quoting Psalm 22. Psalm 22 starts like this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But it continues. Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groanings? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. The psalm goes on to get more hopeful and more cheerful as it celebrates the nearness and, and the faithfulness of God. But this is how the psalmist felt. He felt like God had forsaken him. He felt like God was far off. And so what does Jesus mean by his final question? My God, my God, why you, have you forsaken me? Well, I will tell you that Jesus did not mean that he felt forsaken by God but rather that Jesus was forsaken by God. You see, in 2 Chronicles 15, it says, if you seek the Lord, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. 
These are terrifying words for anyone with an honest conscience. For everyone has sinned against God. Everyone has forsaken God, including you, including me. And because we have forsaken God, God must forsake us. Unless, of course, there is another forsaken by God on our behalf. One who had never forsaken God and deserves no punishment, but could take on our forsakenness. And so as we look at this question of Jesus, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What is the answer to the question? Why has God forsaken Jesus? Why has the Father forsaken his Son? What is the answer to that question? The answer is you. (laughs) The answer is me. God has forsaken his son because for those who trust in Christ, Christ has taken on our forsakenness so that we can hear the promise echoed throughout scriptures and in Hebrews chapter 13 that says from God, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus took on our forsakenness so that in the midst of sin and misery and tragedy, we can rest assured that God has not and will not forsake us. Verse 37 continues, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This curtain that this passage is talking about is a curtain that in the temple separated the holy of holies from the holy place, the most holy place. And the curtain was kind of like a protective barrier between a holy God and sinful man. And the only one that could go into the holy of holies behind the curtain was the great high priest who went in once a year with an animal sacrifice. But now this curtain was torn in two, symbolizing that through the sacrifice of our great high priest, Jesus, we sinful people can now have uninterrupted access to a holy God through a newer and better, an eternal sacrifice, Jesus Christ, the very Son of God. Verse 39 continues. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. The other soldiers beat Jesus. The chief priests mocked Jesus. The passerbyers wagged their heads at Jesus. The thieves hurled insults at Jesus. And yet this Roman Gentile centurion soldier at the death of Jesus, the seeming defeat of Jesus, concludes about Jesus, truly this man was the son of God. Now, how does this Gentile centurion soldier come to this conclusion? This centurion was most likely the chief executioner if he was standing there in front of the cross watching Jesus die. He had certainly seen hundreds of men die through the torture of the cross. But no one had ever died like this man died. No other man died in the middle of death, day, and darkness came over the earth symbolizing the judgment of God's wrath upon sin. No other man died and had the earth quake below him, showing the power of God's justice. No other man died and a foot-thick curtain tore in two, 
No other man died upon the judgment of not guilty. And no other man died with such silence and such majesty. And so the centurion concludes upon the death of Jesus that he is the son of God. And what is so cool through the gospel of Mark is he's actually the first person to correctly identify Jesus as the son of God. If you look through the gospel of Mark, the, the narrator identifies Jesus as the son of God. Demons, demons identify Jesus as the son of God. But here is the first declaration of any person that Jesus is the son of God. And he concluded this at his death. Now Jesus' death is, is so important it is so important that we know that Jesus did not fall asleep on the cross, that he didn't merely have a concussion and become unconscious, but that Jesus, God in the flesh, really did die. This is confirmed down in verse 44. If you look there, it says, Pilate was surprised to hear that Jesus should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. See, the centurion had to make sure that Jesus really was dead. Otherwise, he himself would be put to death. And so, if you remember from our study earlier this year, he took a spear and stuck it up under Jesus' rib and punctured his heart and outflowed blood in a water-like liquid, proving that Jesus was not only dead, but that Jesus was dead dead two times over. And Jesus had to be dead dead to save us because the wages of sin... It's not unconsciousness. It's death. And if Jesus had been crucified but had not died, then our debt would have remained unpaid. There's a story that my brother told me several years ago, and to be honest with you, I'm not sure what parts of it are true and not true, so take it with a grain of salt. But there's a story of a, of a man, a blue-collar man, who was driving home uh, from work in Chicago, and as he's driving home on those busy highways, you know them. That's why I don't live there. Um, but as he's driving home, he sees someone over to the side struggling to change a tire. And so he pulls over and he walks up to the car. And as he's walking up to the car, he realizes that the car is a limousine. And so someone very wealthy and probably very famous is inside the limousine. And the driver is there struggling to change the tire. Nonetheless, he goes and he helps the driver change the tire. And as he's walking back to his car, the, the, the driver stops and says, hey, my passenger wants to talk to you. And so he comes back and he's talking to the passenger and the passenger says, hey, I would thank you so much for stopping. That's very generous of you. I'd like to pay you for your time. He says, no, no, that's quite okay. I'm just headed home for dinner. And, um, you know, I saw there was trouble, wanted to help out. And he said, well, how about this? Why don't, you, why don't you give me your address? That way I can send your wife flowers and thank her and explain to her why you're late. So he agrees to it. He gives the man his address. And the next day, flowers arrive. But what caught them off guard was later that month when they went to pay their mortgage. And their payment was returned because the mortgage had been paid in full. You see, he could not contribute any more to his mortgage because his mortgage had been completed. Why is it so important that Jesus was dead dead? Because the wages of sin is death. And if Jesus did not die, 
then Jesus did not pay any of our debt of sin, leaving you to pay the debt for your own sin. But if Jesus was, in fact, dead and then raised from the dead, then there is no payment left for us to be made because the debt of sin has been paid in full. And so let me ask you, are you still trying to pay off your sin debt to God? Are you trying to make your good works outweigh your bad works? Do you come to church? Do you give in the offering so that God will accept you? Do you beat yourself up when you mess up, thinking you can re-earn God's favor through your self-abuse? Stop. Not the, not the moral behavior, but stop living to gain God's acceptance and love. Stop living to pay off your sin because it has been paid in full upon the cross because Jesus died. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and then Jesus was buried. Verse 40. There, was, there were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. These people are mentioned to validate that it really was Jesus who was crucified and who died. These are people that were ministered to by Jesus, and it says they also ministered to Jesus. And so they knew Jesus very intimately, and the fact that they were at the cross means that this was indeed Jesus who died. They're eyewitness testimonies. Verse 42, and when evening had come, since it was a day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. It says Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea was a respected or prominent member of the council. This means he was part of the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin. The same Sanhedrin whose members sentenced Jesus to death. The same Sanhedrin whose members stirred up the crowds so that they would crucify Jesus instead of Barabbas. And yet here Joseph of Arimathea is trading all of his status, all of his comfort, to claim Jesus for himself because he, like the Roman executioner, was convinced by the events of Jesus' death that Jesus was indeed the Son of God. Verse 44, Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died and summoned the centurion. He asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. In the other gospels, we learn that Joseph of Arimathea places Jesus in his very own tomb. And the tombs were reserved for those who were wealthy. Those with a rolling stone were very wealthy. And so this fulfills the prophecy that the Christ will be buried in the tomb of a rich man. Verse 47 finally says, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Again, another important historical detail so that when the women return Resurrection Sunday, we know that they got the right address. They got the right tomb because they saw the tomb that Jesus was placed in. And so we believe 
that Jesus suffered physically, emotionally, under Pontius Pilate, that Jesus was crucified, that Jesus died, and that he was buried. Let me end with this. In the midst of this historical event, these historical events in Mark chapter 15, can you imagine what the apostles were thinking during this time? On that Good Friday, can you imagine what questions they had for God? I'm guessing they were saying, God, where are you when my Jesus is being abused and assaulted and molested? In that violent moment, I cried out to you, God. I prayed to you, God, to come and to rescue, but you were silent. Where were you? I'm guessing they asked the question, why did God allow my Jesus to die? If God is all good and all powerful and all loving, why does God allow such horrible things to happen to my Jesus? Do not minimize that in this Good Friday, the apostles would have been overwhelmed with grief and confusion in the midst of this tragedy until the resurrection. Because a resurrection changes everything. A resurrection changes our perspective. At the resurrection of Jesus, for the first time, they understood the tragedy. They understood the plan of God and the purposes of God. They could finally grasp that the greatest Evil act in human history was not because God was not good or not powerful or not loving, but precisely because God was good and powerful and loving. We know that in the resurrection, the apostles grasped this because it is the apostles who wrote the gospels for us to understand this. Christian, there is another resurrection coming. It is our resurrection in the new heavens and the new earth. And in that resurrection, we will finally have our questions answered. Why, God, why? Why, God, have you allowed tragedy in my life in this world? And we will fully grasp how it is an expression of his goodness and his power and his love. But until that time comes, we must trust God's resume. We must trust God's character. We must trust God's gospel. Why? Because Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. Jesus was crucified. Jesus died. And Jesus was buried. Let's pray. Lord God, we confess we are a people who often turn on you who forsake you. And yet we are so thankful that you never forsake us, Lord. Lord God, we have many heavy questions. Questions that may not be answered to the full extent in this lifetime. But God, help us to trust you, knowing that Christ on the cross, which was the most wicked and despicable act in human history, was not outside of your love, was not outside of your power, was not outside of your plan. But it was good for us. It was evil, but it was used for our good. God, help us in the midst of sorting through the evil things that we go through, that we would know, Lord, that you are good and that you love us. 
and help us to be patient, to rest and to wait for our answers, for our questions to be answered in full on that day of resurrection. Lord, as we turn to your table this morning, we are reminded of this great evil of the cross. And yet before us is a reminder that through this evil, you had a great plan to redeem your people, to save your people, to draw your people to yourself, to show grace upon us, Lord God, to rescue us. And so as we take of these elements, help us to rest in your sovereign will. Help us to rest in your sovereign plan, even in the midst of tragedy, God. Seeing that in the resurrection, you make all things new. And you work for our good and for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.